Standby playback. And now, live, real red meat radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly, provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize. For being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. Now, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday and it's my pleasure to be with you. And I want to tell you about some brand new studies on marijuana. They're on pot. And you're going to say, Lars, that's a tired old subject. Americans are in favor of legalizing it. Well, I don't know that that's necessarily the truth just yet, but there are a number of states that have made it legal, including the state I live in, and I don't use the stuff. Have I ever done it? Sure. I've admitted to that a long, long time ago, a couple of times in high school, a couple of times in college, and it was boring, and it's a stupid drug as far as I'm concerned. And I know that they're, I'm probably going to wake up the whole 420 crowd out there, and they're going to call in, and you can usually tell within three words, hey, man, I know you don't like pot. Okay. I know you're coming from. Okay, that's all right. But there are some new studies, and you should take this seriously. Let me get into the details of that in just a moment. First, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. Glad to have you with me for what we call, and we live up to it, the the best conversation in talk journalism. It's honestly provocative talk for the United States of America. And if you want to join that conversation, that's easy. 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And if you have the guts to be a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the list. Now, our poll on X today, this one's kind of weird because I came to this a little bit ambivalent, but I voted no on it uh, initially. I didn't know that. I mean, I learned when I'm doing research for this show, uh, it's about, you know, half a dozen hours every day. And I always learned something I didn't know yesterday. That's why when I was in high school, my friends called me a veritable fountain of useless trivia. And that is still true today. But did you know that in four states in America, if you want to divorce your wife and she is pregnant, you can't finish the divorce until after the happy event happens. You, you can't divorce your wife until the pregnancy is over. So that's true in Arizona, Texas, Arkansas, and Missouri. So they're proposing to change it, Missouri. I tried as hard as I could to find out the legislative intent, why these laws are on the books there. Uh, but it, at first blush, you and your wife are in a marriage, happy marriage, unhappy marriage, whatever it happens to be. She gets pregnant, and then you decide, I'm going to divorce her while she's pregnant. Now, I don't know if that just offended the sensibilities of state lawmakers way back when, or if the law is more recent than that. I haven't been able to find out what the legislative intent was, but I'd ask you the question this way. Should you be able to divorce and finalize your divorce if your wife is pregnant? And uh, I'd say no. That That's my initial reaction. Maybe when I find out more about the intent of the law, but I actually racked my brains. Why would somebody want to get divorced when your wife is pregnant? And I've had people say, well, maybe it's somebody else's baby. That's possible. And maybe you'll have to have a paternity test like uh, Joe Biden's son, Hunter, had to get a paternity test. His one, his showed that he was the father in that case. And if she's pregnant and she has a baby and it is yours, you're going to be on the hook for child support, whether you finalize a divorce before the pregnancy is over or not. So it really doesn't affect that issue much at all. But should you be able to divorce 
if your wife is pregnant. And as Missouri says, you can start the process. You can't finalize it till the little baby arrives. So you can find the poll on X at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com. It's brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I believe in. I joined the group long, long time ago. You can join, too. Just go to amac.us, or you can call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Oh, and I've got to mention this. I mean, this isn't the most important story of the day, but I, I thought this was so crazy. I understand back in my 20s, occasionally, if I got home from work and it had been an especially long day, I mean, there were some days as a reporter where I'd get home 16, 18 hours after I started the day. And you're too exhausted to make dinner. So you go to the cupboard, you find whatever's left in there. In your 20s, there's usually not much. And you say, okay, um, I'll eat a bowl of cereal. That'll get me through, and tomorrow morning I'll get a good breakfast. Well, now the CEO of Kellogg's, a great American brand, I've got no connection to them. His name is Gary Pilnick, and Gary Pilnick was actually on CNBC last week, and he was being asked, what should all these people do when groceries cost so much? You know, is there a, is there a solution to this? What would you advise them to do? And I kid you not, and I don't think, even though many of us have actually done this, I don't think this advice is going to go over well. CEO Gary Pilnick told cash-strapped shoppers they should start eating cereal for dinner to save money on groceries. Now, I know he wants to sell another box of cornflakes or maybe 10 million boxes of cornflakes. I just don't think that kind of advice is going to go over well. It's going to be like when Jimmy Carter, formerly the worst president in American history until Joe Biden came along, when Jimmy Carter blamed Americans for the malaise of the 70s, for the fact that the economy sucked, uh, that interest rates were high, gasoline was expensive when it was available, and then he told them all, well, don't worry about the energy shortage, just put on a sweater. Yeah, that didn't go over well. I don't think eating cereal for dinner, even though, as I said, I would confess to having done it from time to time, uh, I don't think that's going to go over very well. But let me tell you about this study, because for years on this program, I told you my position on pot is I think it's a dumb drug. Do I think that legalizing it is a good idea for recreational purposes? And the answer is no, it's not. Uh, but a lot of a number of states have done exactly that. But I pointed out to you that there are a lot of studies from Europe, from Great Britain in particular, where they seem to recognize that when you are a regular user of marijuana, that it increases the chance of psychiatric illness, psychotic behavior. Now, it only increases it a bit, but heck, if you've... If you've got a rate of, say, five psychotics per 100,000 and you jump that to 15, oh, it's a very small percentage increase, but 10 extra psychotic people for every 100,000 in your neck of the wood, that's a lot of extra crazy people running around on the street. So when I saw this, researchers from the University of Maryland School of Medicine have shed light on the concerning trend of cannabis-related psychiatric conditions as cannabis continues to gain widespread acceptance and its potency increases there's an urgent need to screen people for symptoms of cannabis use disorder cud i guess you call it nearly one in five americans age 12 and older used cannabis in 2021 i was not one of them alarmingly 16 million individuals met the criteria for cannabis use disorder 
That's a lot. That's 5% of America, as outlined in the American Psychiatric Association's DSM-5. Among young adults ages 18 to 25, 14% had cannabis use disorder, demonstrating it's a problem. Now, here's the question I've got for you. In places where they have legalized this, generally blue states have legalized marijuana for recreational use, as they call it, they thought there was going to be a big cash cow for government. They're going to slap taxes on it. It was drive. It was going to drive away the illegal trade. You know what? They have a lot of people living on the streets, and they act crazy. You suppose any of that could be tied back to the 420 crowd? Glad to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to take your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. And coming up, Joe Biden says he hopes to have a ceasefire in the war between Israel and Hamas by Monday. But would a ceasefire play right into the Hamas terrorist hands? We'll get to that in a moment. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Actually want to be at. This is the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'll get back to your phone calls and emails shortly. I want to talk to my friend Frank Gaffney, though, the founder of the Center for Security Policy in Washington, D.C., and author, by the way, of the number one best-selling book in its category on Amazon, The Indictment, Prosecuting the Chinese Communist Party and its Friends for Crimes Against America, China, and the World. Frank, welcome back. Thank you, Lars. Great to be with you. So Joe Biden is talking about having a ceasefire by Monday between Israel and Hamas. So having carried out a slaughter, uh, Hamas, and having drawn an attack on Hamas that has taken both the lives of Hamas and some citizens, or civilians as well, in Gaza, now we're going to have a ceasefire and give the terrorists a chance to uh, re regroup and rearm? Well, that's just one of the harebrained aspects of this idea. The problem more broadly... Uh, Lars, is that at the end of it all, the administration intends to establish a Palestinian state. And, and they seem even inclined to try to declare the existence of one before it, <laughs> it exists. And it, 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 here's a clue as to what's wrong with that. When Gaza was under the control of Hamas, you had a, quote, two-state situation. Whether yeah. a solution uh, to anything other than the ultimate destruction of the state of Israel is a debatable point, but it didn't work out very well because that Palestinian enclave incessantly was attacking Israel, and it had as its charter destroying it. There's nothing that is going to come out of this that's different from that outcome if there's some other parts of um, the area known historically as uh, the Holy Land and Israel, Judea and Samaria, notably, uh, that are going to also be surrendered to these guys as a reward for what they did on October 7th. And make no mistake, that would be the outcome. But here's here's another tell, Lars. There was a gal by the name of, uh, I think it's Bonnie uh, Jenkins, I believe it is. She's an undersecretary of state. That's like the next to the secretary and the deputy secretary, the top right. tier of the State Department. Yep. She was asked by a congressman by the name of Brian Mass the other day, uh, so who, who do you have in mind 
running this Palestinian state. And for about five tortured minutes, she adamantly refused to say. She, she wouldn't even acknowledge that they were thinking about who would take over, let alone tell you who they had in mind. And there's a reason for that. And that is because there's nobody that you could turn the Palestinian community to uh, over to, especially if you want to have it into the pretense of democracy, that would be anything other than, um, you know, an enemy of Israel determined not to live side by side in peace with it, but to destroy it. And you're going to have a, an area that will be run by a terrorist organization, either Hamas or Hamas will tell the folks running it how to run it. Any, any doubt about that? Not a doubt at all. And that's in part because what we've seen in successive public opinion polls in both the Gaza area as well as this so-called West Bank is that Hamas enjoys overwhelming support support specifically for what it did on October 7th and for what it promises to do as well. So no, again, there's going to be anything remotely like a popular mandate for the governing power. It will look a lot like Hamas, whether it's called that or something else. You know, I honestly think that a lot of Americans misunderstand this situation in this fashion. They say, okay, you've got a, 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 you know, you're divided with somebody else. You've got a problem. Work it out. Except that I always, I, I always point out to them, I said one of the preconditions of both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority that runs the West Bank of the Jordan River, um, that, that area, uh, that they claim as Palestine, one of their preconditions is you have to erase the state of Israel. And I said, mm-hmm. you know, I, I work things out with my neighbors at my house. But if one of my neighbors said, uh, you know, well, I got a problem with you, Larson, and I said, okay, how do we resolve the problem? And he says, well, the only way the problem's going to be resolved is when um, you're dead and your family is gone and your house is is burned down. I'd say then we're not going to work out anything because if one of your preconditions is I have to be dead or gone or both, um, then we're not we're not talking about anything. And as long as and do do both of those still hold to that position, we want the state We've been offered a state at least six times in the last hundred years, both before the creation of the state of Israel and after. We refuse it. We reject it. We will take the state only when these people are dead and gone and that the state of Israel is gone. And you say, are they going to give that up, Frank? Uh, or are they just going to, you know, accept, okay, we will accept the existence of our neighbors? Because I, I don't think that's an unreasonable precondition. So when people say work it out, and you say the only way to work it out with my neighbor is if I go out and kill myself, no, I'm not going to do that. Or let him kill you. Or let him kill me. Yeah. Either way. Yeah. And, and, Lars, thank you for reducing it to just the most commonsensical, basic bottom line. And that is there are circumstances in the world in which people, you know, um, have irreconcilable differences. Um, Think of North Korea versus South Korea, for example. Um, And what the South Koreans are reduced to doing is defending themselves against the abiding hostility of that regime across the border and its determined effort to destroy them. And, And if this were just a fight between Israel and Hamas, that would be bad enough. The irreconcilable differences would be bad enough. But what's happening, Lars, as I'm sure you're aware, 
is that um, Hezbollah, another Iranian-backed entity, vastly more dangerous than Hamas, vastly more powerful than Hamas, and no less determined to destroy the state of Israel, is lobbing missiles. I think there were 35 they fired into Israel yesterday. Yep. And they happen to have something like 150,000 more to go. And 80,000 Israelis have been driven from their homes. There's no talk about those displaced persons, by the way. And I think that we're looking at the distinct possibility that if this administration, the Biden administration, persists in constraining the Israelis, failing to provide them all the arms they need to defend themselves, um, forcing upon them a ceasefire, encouraging Hezbollah to believe that they will not allow the Israelis to attack them, which has been telegraphed. All of this is going to conduce, to say nothing of what's going on with Iran, by the way, or the Houthi rebels, for that matter, to a vastly more dangerous situation for Israel and for us, whose fight they are fighting, by the way. Let me shift gears for a moment. I want to ask you about this. New York Times runs a story that I thought would get a lot more attention. Turns out the United States has had secret CIA bases, a dozen of them, in Ukraine on Russia's border for the last 10 years. They reported that Sunday. I don't know if you saw it. I, I didn't see it, but I've been okay. hearing about it. Well, it, but but hold on. Isn't this the whole reason? Isn't this one of the reasons? Oh, Putin says Ukraine was a threat to them. Oh, that's that's silly. Oh, really? Because the U.S. had biolabs bio in Ukraine, which Victoria Newland told the Congress, yeah, don't let them fall into Russian hands. These folks weren't just treating syphilis and, and influenza. You know, if she's saying it's dangerous. And then the CIA is running secret intelligence gathering. And I, I said to people, what if China said someday we've befriended Mexico and we're going to set up a bunch of secret intelligence gathering bases on the northern border of Mexico just across from Eagle Pass and maybe McAllen? How would the United States respond? And, and, uh, and uh, of course, I get called a, a Putin stooge. We've got about 30 seconds. What should we make of the fact that we've been running this kind of operation in Ukraine for a decade that seems relatively provocative? Well, it does seem to be an awful lot of secret stuff going on in Ukraine, and uh, we'll probably learn more about it. But I would just say that the Mexicans are in bed with China. There are tens of thousands of Chinese special forces coming across that border, it seems. Yep. Um, and we also have Chinese biolabs in this country as well, it appears. Yeah, well, yeah, news. in Ridley, California and, and other places. And, mm -hmm. of course, we have garden-variety illegal aliens coming into America and raping and murdering people. And that's a piece of what Joe Biden has made possible. Frank, that's Frank Gaffney from the Center for Security Policy. The book is called The Indictment. Check it out on Amazon. You've got the Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Talk to Lars, 866-HEY-LARS. Welcome back to the program. It's a pleasure to be with you. I'll get to your calls in just a moment. i got to give you a little bit of an update on the case involving the murder uh, of Lake and Riley. I mean, it gets uglier and uglier as though that were possible. 
Now, you know, we've talked about this before, that Lakin Riley, 22-year-old nursing student at uh, uh, the Augusta University, and she's uh, killed on the University of Georgia campus at Athens, is accused, the man who did this is now accused of disfiguring her skull. The police have released a new affidavit that was filed in court in Superior Court in Athens County, Georgia. Um, charges Jose Antonio Ibarra with malice murder, murder, kidnap, false imprisonment, aggravated assault, aggravated battery, concealing the death of another, misdemeanor, physically hindering a 911 call. And now in the affidavit, they say this guy not only murdered Lake and Riley, this is what they claim. He has a right to his day in court. I get that. But he somehow disfigured her skull, which just brings, I mean, your imagination goes wild. To have killed this young lady <clears throat> and uh, and then to have mutilated her is just so ugly. And the fact that he had been in police custody at least two times, once when he crossed the border two years ago in El Paso under Joe Biden's open borders policies, and he was in custody and released. And then he was arrested again September of last year for injury to a child. The suspect and his brother uh, have both been cited. This guy's got a criminal record, and the sanctuary policies of big American blue cities have allowed this guy to run around the country until he was accused of murdering Lake and Riley. So an update on that story, and we're going to keep a close eye on that. Interesting, won't it be interesting to see if Joe Biden has anything to say about the fact that one of his illegal aliens kill, is now accused of killing this young lady and whether or not Joe Biden understands he's got blood on his hands and Americans want him to fix this problem. Uh, let's go first, Karen in Alabama. Hey, Karen, welcome to the Lars Larson Show on this Tuesday. Uh, what's on your mind, ma'am? Well, I was just calling to t say something to uh, the effect of the cost of cereal, but now that you talk <laughs> about Lake and the Riley, it, to me that's just irrelevant now that I'm dealing that we're dealing with six and seven dollar boxes of cereal compared to the death of this precious girl. So, you know, well, I, I think I've lost all sense of whining about uh the bought the price of a cereal over now just my heart's broken for this family and our country of uh, the death of this uh and and i just feel like there's more to come but i was well, just going to say apparently this ceo of, of kellogg's has not been to the grocery store and bought a gallon <laughs> of milk and, a, and cereal lately because we don't have cereal in our cabinets no more <laughs> Well, and, and, and it, it, it is expensive. I mean, when I was in my 20s, I used to eat cereal. I don't so much anymore. i got to watch my sugar. But, you know, he was saying, hey, if you're short of money for groceries, you can sit down to dinner. Why? Uh, and he was estimating that a bowl of cereal with milk on it, he figures, would cost about a dollar. Now, I assume that if you take one of those $7 boxes of cereal and split it six or seven ways, uh, or maybe more, and then, and then pour a little bit of milk on it, you could probably... but. Have we really reached the point in America, a bit the wealthiest country on the planet? Energy to beat the band, a productive workforce, technology all over the place, and that we're saying, and our people sometimes sit down to a dinner of of cereal and milk. Cereal. Mm. It mm. it's it's like we're a third world country or something. I know, I know. Well, I appreciate your show, and I, I appreciate uh, what you bring to the table every night. Thank well, you. 
Thank you, ma'am. Uh, that's uh, Karen from Alabama. Karen, thank you very much. Let me go to Linda. Hey, Linda, welcome to the program. I take it you want to talk about young Lake and Riley, the 22-year-old woman who was murdered, and yeah. her murderer is yeah. the accused murderer is a man that Joe Biden and his and his uh, policies yeah, 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 allowed into America. That is what I, yeah, yeah, that is what I'd like to talk about. So I um, was listening to you, and you brought up this horrible, awful murder, and I agree, it's a horrible, awful murder. And I wondered why you were describing a horrible, awful murder, except that in the back of my mind, I knew you were going to say that it was committed by an illegal alien. Yes. How did I know that, Lars? Well, I knew um, that's what it was going to be. That's why you were describing Are, are you it. suggesting I that I don't talk? That are it was you, going to be an illegal immigrant that did this crime. Immigrant? Hmm. Interesting use of terminology, Linda. Whatever. I knew who it was. Well, no, it's not a whatever. No, but Linda, I talk about murders that are committed by Americans. We talked for a Mm -hmm. lot last year about a murder, about four murders committed in Idaho, and that was not committed by an illegal. So if what you're suggesting is I only talk about horrible crimes when they're connected to illegal aliens, is that what you're suggesting? Or something that you object to. Yes, I do. I am suggesting that. Okay, can you tell me in the Idaho murders? the four students in, in the four students that were murdered in Idaho, where's the illegal alien connection? There is not. It's just a horrible crime, right? Yes. Now, let me ask you about your use of the word immigrant, because this is abused so much by the media, by politicians and others. Do you consider somebody who comes to this country legally, seeks a green card, gets the green card after years of effort and a lot of money and becomes on the path to citizenship, is that an immigrant? Yes, it is. Because they came here legally and they asked our permission. Now, when somebody comes across our border and breaks the law by entering, if they've been deported before, they've broken the law twice, they've committed a felony just by crossing the border again. Then once here, they may or may not identify themselves accurately but they may commit other crimes. If they work without a green card, they are committing another crime. If they're using somebody else's social security, that's another crime. That's before they drive drunk, murder, rape, or steal. Do you consider somebody who comes to our country and their first actions from the first moment they step into our country is breaking our laws? Is that an immigrant? Maybe not. I would say not, definitely not. Let me give you this comparison, Linda. Linda, if you invited me, if but you say that all I talk about is illegals. I just proved you that's not true. But if you invited me to my to your home to visit your home, would I be a guest? Yes. If I come at two in the morning without your invitation, am I still a guest? No. I'm I'm a criminal, right? Uh, if you break into my house, yes. Well, or, if I enter your home you without your permission, door, I'm you committing a door, crime. You're not a, if you knock at my door, you're not a criminal. No, but I said if I enter your home at 2 in the morning without your invitation, am I a guest or am I a criminal? Yes, that would make you a criminal. And do the same kind of rules apply? And why do you suppose it is that liberals in this country want to describe People who are committing crimes as immigrants, as though they're in the same category as all those millions of people that we've let in legally who've gone to the effort to ask permission to come to our country and have come here legally, why would you put the two together? 
Uh, that was not my point. You know, my point, okay, if you want to call them illegal aliens, that's fine. But my point is not every, some of them came from very bad circumstances, had a real hard time getting here. Don't care. And not all of them are rapists and murderers. I've never said that they were all rapists. They are disproportionately rapists. They are disproportionately murderers. No. I'm I'm telling you from the stats. Disproportionately so? Yes. No, that's yes. The numbers, the numbers of illegal aliens sitting in federal and state prisons around America is greater than their pop, than the population of well i know you don't believe it because you don't pay attention but linda i've given the numbers dozens of times probably hundreds of times by now illegal aliens are disproportionately criminals which shouldn't surprise you if they came here illegally why should they care about following any other laws you got the lars larson show I want to talk to James Swanson, who's a noted historian and author of a brand new book called The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, a forced march and the fight for survival in early America. Mr. Swanson, welcome to the program. Thank you, Larry. It's great to be on. One of the reasons that I like to feature historians on this program is because I don't think Americans know enough about our own history, let alone history around the rest of the world. So you're going to have to start me out easy. I have not had the chance to read the book yet. But what what was when did the Deerfield massacre happen? It was close to what three hundred years ago. It was three hundred twenty years ago. This February twenty ninth, seventeen oh four. It's one of the great action adventure thrillers in early American history. It's a tale of war and empire, life and death, endurance and survival, and the family and faith, and ultimately resurrection and redemption. And the great hero of the story is the Reverend Ron John Williams, the courageous minister of Deerfield, Massachusetts, and he's one of the great but forgotten religious leaders in early colonial American history. It happened when hundreds of French and Indians came down from French Canada and attacked and wiped out the town of Deerfield, Massachusetts. They killed 50 people during the raid. They captured 112 people and took them on a forced march to Canada to be captives. And during that death march to Canada, the French and Indians killed another 20 people from Deerfield, helpless people, women, children with tomahawks and war clubs. They killed people who couldn't make the journey pregnant women, women who just given birth, little children, even babies. So it's one of the great violent and early stories in early America that's been totally forgotten. But it's also a story of values, inspiration, patriotism, and loyalty and faith. So it's a great American struggle of endurance and survival. And so it has such relevance for today. So that's, in a nutshell, the story of the Deerfield Massacre. Ms. Swanson, uh, so just to be clear, as they're making this forced march of 300 miles into Canada, being taken there by their captors, if anybody faltered or slowed the group down, they simply murdered that person? Exactly. In fact, even before the journey, on the night of the raid, when the Indians and French broke into the home of Reverend John Williams, the Puritan leader of the town, they murdered two of his children on his doorstep by smashing their hands against a stone step. He killed a, they killed a newborn baby and a young child. And then they killed the servant of Reverend Williams, who was trying to protect the children. So those were three deaths in his own household there. And then they took him captive, his wife captive. And the next day on that march, she fell into the river, got frozen, was chilled to the bone. She had given birth only a few weeks before. And what happened? She couldn't move again. She couldn't join the march. An Indian killed her with one blow of his tomahawk. 
And that happened to 20 people on the journey north to Canada. It was it was a terrible, terrible story of endurance and suffering. The book is called The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, a forced march in the fight for survival in early America. So let's back up a bit. What what inspired this attack on Deerfield? Well, it was a war between England and France over domination of the North American continent. The French were in Canada and the English colonists were in New England, in in this case, uh, Massachusetts. And so the French wanted to send a statement because Deerfield was the most remote New England outpost in northwestern Massachusetts. They wanted to make a statement that we're going to challenge your presence in North America. It was all part of Queen Anne's war between England and France and other European powers. They were warring over who was going to be the next king of Spain. And that war came over to America. And and the French decided they were going to make a statement and force the English out of Deerfield in northwestern Massachusetts. So it was part of a struggle, a, a continental worldwide struggle between France and England over the domination of the New World. And Deerfield happened to be in the way, and Deerfield suffers as a consequence. What was the what was in it for the tribes that agreed to ally with the French? What what were they seeking to gain? Well, several things. There there were several allied tribes to the French the Abnaki, the Hurons, the Mohawks, and the Iroquois. And tribes had different reasons. One, some of the tribes wanted vengeance. They wanted to kill the English colonists. They resented their presence. They had suffered under them. They wanted to punish the colonists. Other tribes were interested in so-called mourning wars, and that's M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. Some tribes wanted to replace people who had been killed in battle or died or vanished with captives, young captives, young girls and young boys from New England, and change them into Indians, adopt them in Indian culture, and make them lose their faith, uh, make them uh, become either Catholics or Indians. And they they stopped learning to speak English. They spoke the native languages, they dressed as natives, and they became members of the native tribes. And other tribe members wanted to capture people to sell them back to the English for ransom. So the tribes had different motives depending on their individual cultures. Let me ask you about the survivors. Uh, so they marched 300 miles into enemy territory in Canada. What ulti- Well, let me ask you about Reverend John Williams first. I don't want to forget to do that. Was yeah. he just naturally seen by his community, this is the man, if, if we're in this kind of situation, this is the man who's going to lead us? Yes, without a doubt. He had lived in Deerfield for decades. He had been their minister ultimately when he was returned and he lived down in Deerfield. He became the minister of Deerfield for 46 years. And so he was their natural leader. He had been with them all along. He chose to move to Deerfield when he became a minister, which was a dangerous place to live. Deerfield had been subject to many Indian attacks and raids for, for decades, but he chose to live in peril to help these people and start this church in Deerfield. And so he was their natural leader. They came to him during the march. One heartbreaking example, a woman had fallen on the ice. She was 31 years old. She was in good health, and she fell on the ice, and she miscarried her child. Oh, my God. And she came to Reverend Williams and said, pray with me, Reverend Williams. Uh, I've lost my baby. I, I fell on the ice. I was injured. And now I know they're going to kill me. Pray with me now. Pray for my soul. And Reverend Williams got down and did that with her, as many people did during that march. He was really their leading light that inspired them to try to survive this 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 nightmare. And many of them did survive, thanks to Reverend Williams. James Swanson is the, the author most recently of The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise attack, force march, and the fight for survival in early America. Now, I want people to read the book, 
But we're going to wrap up here in a moment, uh, Ms. Swanson, but what ultimately became of the 112 survivors? Many of them came back with Reverend Williams in great triumph, and they were celebrated for surviving this and keeping the faith. Some of them converted to Catholicism. The Jesuit ministers tried to get Reverend Williams to do it. They offered him bribes and freedom, but he wouldn't do it. He wouldn't turn on his faith. Some of them stayed in Canada. Some of them married Indians. Some of them married Canadians. But the most of them came back to Deerfield with Reverend Williams, and they rebuilt the town. And Reverend Williams lived for another quarter century. He lost his little girl, Eunice. They captured her, and they turned her into a Mohawk native, and she never came home again. So he, although, despite his great suffering, he became a hero to, to his people. The book is called The Deerfield Massacre, a surprise, a, a surprise Attack, A Forced March, and the Fight for Survival in Early America. James Swanson is its author. Mr. Swanson, thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Glad to get your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. Vote in our poll on X. You can check us out on Instagram. And, of course, you can always tell Alexa to play The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This is the Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a Tuesday. It's a pleasure to be with you and i'm glad to take your phone calls and your emails at 866 hey lars that's 866-439-5277 i gotta talk about fast food in just a moment and i have to admit uh i don't really have a dog in the fight anymore uh i would i would confess to you that there was a time where anytime i got near a wendy's i would drive in there and probably order a, a cheeseburger and i kind of liked wendy's i don't do a lot of fast food these days uh, i tend to look out for you know trying to eat a little more healthy uh so i don't do fast food much at all but when i did fa- wendy's was one of my favorites wendy's is going to roll out what they call dynamic pricing now i'll confess to you this just broke a few hours ago and i thought well What do they mean exactly? I mean, I had a general idea because an awful lot of things are dynamically priced these days. But let me get to the details on it in just a moment. First, welcome to the program. We call it the best conversation in talk journalism, and you're invited to join it at 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line if you disagree with yours truly. That's 866-439-5277. Send emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our poll on X. Uh, used to be called the Twitter poll now it's x would you or should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant and in missouri and uh, arkansas texas and arizona that's illegal you can start the divorce you can't finish it until that baby is born so i said well should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant i said no and i i i've reserved the right to do more research 
I can't find where they explain the legislative intent of this law. In other words, why they put it on the books to begin with in places like Arizona, Arkansas, Texas, and Missouri. And in Missouri, they're considering taking it off the books. There's actually a bill uh, apparently before their legislature. Ashley Oni, who's a Democrat, a young lady, uh, has introduced the bill that would allow pregnant people to legally divorce or separate. And really, at the end of the day, they're only saying don't do it during the pregnancy. Wait till the baby is born. So let's assume it's the middle of a pregnancy. If you had to wait an extra four months to divorce, uh, would that really make the biggest difference to you? And, and again, people have talked about, well, what if she's pregnant by somebody else? What if it's not really your child? Lots of other issues, but I don't think any of them go to the heart of why this is on the books at all. And it makes me curious anytime I see a law like this that applies to everybody who's married, everybody who might have had a divorce, and it's only on the books in four states and not in any of the other 46 or 54 if you're an Obama fan. Um, in any case, you can find the X-Poll at Lars Larson Show and at LarsLarson.com, brought to you by AMAC, the Association of Mature American Citizens. AMAC has the conservative values I've always believed in. I joined, and you should too. Just go to amac.us or call 888-262-2006. AMAC's better, better for you and better for America. Now, yesterday... Boy, did we have an interesting result on the X-Poll yesterday. Should the government be allowed to police big tech censorship? This has to do with two laws. One's on the books in Florida, one's in Texas. And Florida and Texas got sick and tired of all the social media companies, entities like Google and Meta or Facebook, Twitter, companies like that, that were censoring because of people's point of view. In other words, they censor conservative speech. They allow all the crazy liberals to say whatever they want. I'm not talking about taking things off social media platforms that are physically dangerous, atom bomb plans, recipes for rice and things like that. But those two states said, we don't want you to do that anymore. If you're going to be a platform, behave like a platform. Anybody gets to post. You don't get to throttle conservative speech while allowing liberal speech to go ahead unfettered. So I said, should the government be able, allowed to police big tech censorship? 66% of you said no. I found myself on the losing side of that one. Only 34% of you said yes, as I did. And it may have been because we weren't that precise in framing the question, but I'd plead guilty to that as well. Oh, and one little mention. Apparently, sexism plays very, very well. I don't think much of Don Lemon. He used to work at CNN. He got fired because he said ugly things about women. I mean, his most uh, well-known or infamous comment might have been that about Nikki Haley. Now, I don't like Nikki Haley's politics, but Don Lemon, who's gay, uh, had made the comment about Nikki Haley that at age 51, she was past her prime. And he made this comment on the air in front of two other female co-anchors who, as I recall, one of them was also north of 50. So you say insulting things in front of your female co-workers and you get fired. Well, guess what? It seems to pay very, very well. Don Lemon has now just received the news that CNN, having fired the guy, will pay him $24.5 million to settle the lawsuit he brought after he was fired. So apparently sexism 
at least for Democrats and liberals, pays very, very well. Now, let me get back to Wendy's and the fast food. And if you want to join in, it's 866-439-5277. So, as I said, I don't do much fast food at all. It may be that if we're on a road trip, Tina and I love road trips, and we take my granddaughter Payson on road trips, um, it might be that we, we would swing through a fast food place if we're in a hurry, but it doesn't happen all that often. But Wendy's has always been one of my favorites. They have now announced at Wendy's that starting next year, they're going to go to digital menu boards in their Wendy's fast food joints. And the reason they're going digital is because they are going to put dynamic pricing in place. Now, what does that mean? Well, dynamic pricing when it comes to, say, concert tickets or sporting events tickets means that if you're going to a popular concert, cost more. You're going to a popular sporting contest, two really good basketball teams, football teams, whatever, the tickets will cost more than a lesser contest. When it comes to Uber and Lyft and all the rideshare outfits, if you decide to whistle up an Uber or a uh, Lyft um, in, uh, in busy times, say a ball game is getting out somewhere and you decide, I'm going to get an Uber, you may be shocked by the price because they use congestion pricing and dynamic pricing when the rides are popular, it costs more. Now, that seems pretty simple. You might even apply it to airlines and things like that. You'll get deals if you're going to fly to some place that's, say, less popular or a less popular airport, uh, say the Washington, D.C. airports that I fly into from time to time. Uh, the less popular airports like BWI, a whole lot cheaper than Reagan National. But Wendy says it's going to experiment with changing the cost of the food they sell depending on how busy it is. Now, how this is going to actually work remains to be seen. It's going to be interesting. But they say the new menu boards will actually allow them to change the price on the menu when people walk in, depending on how busy the restaurant is. That is going to be an interesting experiment. I don't know that it's going to work out well. Coming up, today's breakthroughs could be tomorrow's cures. Are there any early successes in some medical trials that might give us some hope for the future? We'll talk to our medical go-to guy coming up next. you can't get enough Lars podcast every show at LarsLarson.com welcome back it's going to be glad I'll be glad to get your phone calls and emails in just a moment but I want to talk to our medical go-to guy Dr. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health he is a physician molecular biologist and was founding director of the FDA's office of biotechnology doc welcome back and tell me about some of these big medical breakthroughs that we're right on the edge of yeah, uh, glad to, Lars. Uh, last week we discussed um, some of the new antibiotics that are uh, groundbreaking, um, that are uh, useful in antibiotic-resistant infections, including methicillin-resistant Staph aureus, MRSA. Right. Uh, but but there, are, there are a bunch of others that are fascinating. Um, artificial intelligence, or AI, of course, is all the rage these days. 
um, from uh, students using them to uh, write their papers uh, to um, uh, all sorts of things, including medicine. And um, AI has been around for a while for certain medical applications, like reading x-rays. And of course, an x-ray uh, has very subtle shadings that are important medically. And uh, AI is very good at distinguishing um, abnormalities from normal variants. Um, and um, uh, it improves the ability of radiologists to interpret these because it can call attention to suspect lesions, and then the, the radiologist can uh, go from there. Um, I had an experience last year with um, AI in my colonoscopy. So the, the gastroenterologist had a, an AI program that was built into the colonoscope. And as the scope moved through the colon, when it got to an area of what it suspected was an abnormality, it would create an iridescent box around it that the uh, gastroenterologist could then examine further, uh, could biopsy, or in the case of a polyp, could, could actually remove. And uh, in the clinical trials that led up to FDA's approval of this, which is called GI Genius, which is, I think is a very cool name, um, the uh, GI Genius uh, increased the detectability of uh, adenomas, that is precancerous, or carcinomas, cancers, um, to 55% from 42% with standard That's a big jump, right? That's a big jump. That's a big jump uh, and prevention of a lot of cancers and a lot of misery. Um, there's another um, more subtle uh, use for um, for AI in, me in uh, medicine, and that's in triage. So, um, you know, patients might not like to, uh, to talk to an AI program, but uh, in a, um, a questionnaire, uh, they can uh, describe symptoms, describe their history, and so on, and uh, alert the, um, the uh, clinician uh, via the AI program to, uh, to problems. Also, it's had great success in uh, mental health triage. Uh, so people who may be uh, very depressed or suicidal um, can get help much, much more quickly um, in it with, when they're triaged by uh, an AI program. And in, in one large study, the uh, time required to get help to them, human help, uh, was reduced from uh, 10 hours to about 10 minutes, uh, preventing uh, suicidal uh, uh, actions from, from occurring. So uh, that, that kind of thing is, is very important. Well, let, let uh, me ask you about a concern I've got, and that is this. Mm -hmm. um, because I've told you, I see the promise as well. And when I think about radiology uh, work and some, you know, human eyes are looking at a scan uh, and and they miss something, and that's terrible. It could mean the death of the patient. It could mean you know extra treatment required uh, to to take care of the problem they have. So I see the AI, uh, the value of the AI. I worry about it in two ways. One, what happens when you go to your doctor? The doctor uses the AI. The AI says you ought to check for this, and your doctor says you know 
Uh, that's possible, but I really don't think it's likely. If he doesn't use the diagnosis of the machine or the, the apparent diagnosis of the machine that's saying, you know, check these four things. And he says, yeah, these three are likely. That one's not very likely. I won't do it. If he doesn't follow the directions of the machine, does that mean problems for him later on? You know, because somebody's some patient's going to say, you missed this. And the AI told you to look for it or told you this was a possibility and you dismissed it. So unless he does everything the AI's results suggest, then he's running the risk that if the AI was right and he was wrong, uh, there's there's a lawyer and a lawsuit in his future. The second concern I've got kind of goes the other direction. So, I you know, I, I don't have, you know, you know that I've done, I've watched operations, I've hung out with doctors, I've, you know, watched heart transplants, I've watched a lot of things. I'm, medicine's very fascinating. But you watch these doctors who will do differential diagnosis. Okay, we've got a patient here, 50-year-old male, who's, you know, reporting this, this, and this, and he asks his medical residents or students, what's the differential diagnosis? Well, it could be this, could be this, could be this. That's to get them practiced in the idea of paying attention to what the symptoms are and what kind of ailments might be ailing this patient, right? If you use the AI, and the AI kind of pre-screens the, the patients, um, the doctor starts to, I don't know how you can avoid leaning on that a little bit. Okay, these, these folks have already been screened by the AI, says it's likely to be this, I'm going to go that direction. I worry about it biasing them in a certain direction to where they, 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 they stop doing it on their own and they let the machine do it instead. Does that make sense? It, it does make sense. Uh, and uh, it's, it, it's, it's a problem that's already sort of baked in to um, medical training. And, I, and I'll tell you how. Uh, there's a saying uh, in medicine, and especially for medical students, um, when you're doing a differential diagnosis and you hear hoofbeats, uh, think of horses, not zebras. Yeah. <laughs> and and, and so, so what that means, of course, is that the most common things, horses, are are going to be more common and and should be uh, focused on rather than zebras, rather than uh, some esoteric genetic uh, abnormality or uh, in, infectious agent from uh, Central Africa that you're just never going to see. Uh, so, you know, we we kind of compensate for that already. But you're absolutely right that you don't want to let. Um, the, the printout from the machine uh, dictate what you do thoughtlessly. And the, and the emphasis here is on the term thoughtlessly. But, but if, you, if you say, but if I have to do all the things the machine's already done, what's the machine there for? You know, and if, if, I, if I start to lean on uh, or allow the machine to say, I've looked at this patient, here's the most likely diagnosis, and the doctor says, yep, yeah, that's probably the right one. And it probably, the machine is probably right. 100 to 99 times out of 100, maybe even 999 times out of 1,000. But that, that's the concern I've got, is that you start to lean on it and say, I'm a busy doctor. They already seem so busy that they spend more time typing into a laptop in, in an exam room than they do even talking to the patient. I don't know if you've run into that, but it does. you get that impression. The doctor walks in, says good morning, sits down, faces the laptop, starts asking you questions, typing stuff in, and you think, I've been here for, you know, 10 minutes, and the doctor has seen me for 20 seconds, and he's in the same room. 
I have experienced that, and and I resent that, frankly. Uh, and and good doctors don't do that. Uh, they they listen and they examine uh, and they use the machines as an adjunct. Uh, but I'll tell you where uh, I think the AI can be. We're useful. about twenty away, Doc. So we okay. got to wrap. The, it, where I think where it can be useful is in finding the occasional zebra, because uh, uh, from the uh, description of the patient, of of the symptoms and signs, and the lab test profile. That's the way to do it. Dr. Henry Miller from the American Council on Science and Health. Doc, thanks very much. I'll get to your phone calls and emails in a moment. And Joe Biden goes on late night TV. Did it help him or hurt him? We'll talk about a couple of views on that next. The Lars Larson Show. Brought them into Spotify, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Google. Yeah, he's everywhere. The Lars Larson Podcast. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you on a Tuesday. Always glad to get your calls. I will admit, I didn't see Joe Biden show up on Late Night with Seth Meyers. I mean, to a large extent, I've kind of lost my taste for the late night shows. They all tilt hard to the left. So when we heard that Joe Biden was going to try to rehabilitate his image by going on with Seth Meyers so that a liberal media guy could toss liberal softballs at Joe Biden and apparently wouldn't hold him accountable if he decides to be unintelligible, which he has been on the show. I thought, okay, I'm just going to take a look at what comes out of it and what Joe had to say. Well, Joe Biden talking about Donald Trump. I just want to quote some of this from Seth Meyers. So credit where it's due. I think everything we've gotten done, he's unintelligible is the way it shows up, says he wants to do away with when he gets elected. Well, Donald Trump's said two things in particular. Day one, we're going to drill, drill, drill. He's not getting rid of anything. He's just accessing America's energy, and he's going to close down the border, and he plans the biggest deportation effort in American history. So when Joe Biden says, I think everything we've got done, he's he says he wants to do away with when he gets elected. Yeah, he wants to do it with, with Bidenflation, the fact that prices have gone out of, uh, out of control. He wants to do away with 4 or $5 gasoline. He wants to do away with inflation that is crippling Americans' families. And then Biden went on. He said, I really think his views on where to take America are older than. And then he pauses. Anyway, this is the way Joe Biden seems to end a lot of sentences. In other words, he starts out saying something. He doesn't quite get to the point. Then he loses within about a dozen words. He loses his train of thought. We've all done it from time to time. Joe Joe Biden does it all the time. He says the Trump can't remember his wife jab stems from a small portion of a deposition given by Trump during his legal battle with his rape accuser, E. Jean Carroll. Trump was handed a black and white photograph that showed a small group of people, including himself, 
including his then-wife, Marla Maples, Carol, and her then-husband, John Johnson. After briefly confusing Marla for Carol, Trump looked closer at the photo and said, I assume that's John Johnson. Is that Carol? Because it's very blurry. So somehow Joe Biden takes that to mean that Donald Trump can't remember his wife. Well, Joe Biden is the same guy who showed up on stage and has confused his wife for his sister. I mean, Joe Biden knows that Americans know that he is rapidly falling apart mentally right in front of us. So I guess his only answer is to say, well, Trump's just as bad. Here's what I'd suggest you do. And I know that there are some of you who despise Donald Trump. I don't. I think he's great. I know that there are those of you who believe that Joe Biden is fantastic and he's done great things for America. I love to ask naysayers. So tell me the best thing that Joe Biden has done to improve this country in the last three years. You want a deer in the headlights look? That's the question that will produce it. So Joe Biden is trying to convince Americans that Donald Trump ain't very sharp. Do you know what happens when Donald Trump goes to one of these rallies he holds and tens of thousands of people show up and Trump gets up on stage? Yes, he's got a teleprompter, but if you've ever noticed, he'll launch into the teleprompter speech and then he'll start to ad lib and he will ad lib and he'll stand up there and talk for an hour and a half. Can you imagine how Joe Biden would what would happen if Joe Biden tried to duplicate that? stand up in front of a crowd of people and take any question they want to throw at him for an hour, say for a half an hour. Joe Biden doesn't sit down for interviews very often, and he definitely doesn't do it if it's not a friendly environment. He rarely shows up in the White House briefing room. Donald Trump used to go there all the time, and he would take questions for long, long periods, half an hour, an hour. I, I once saw one why I just kept watching into the evening. He stood there for about an hour and a half, answering questions on every subject under the sun. Can you imagine what would happen if Joe Biden stood in front of a crowd of reporters who say, hey, Mr. President, well, you don't say, hey, Mr. President, but Mr. President, what do you say to those people who criticize you because an illegal alien is now accused of killing and disfiguring Lakin Riley just recently? And that man came in illegally, was released by your border protection agents, went to New York and was arrested again and was released by the courts there, and then he goes and kills Lake and Riley. What would you say to that? Now, that's a good question. What would Joe Biden say about the fact that a lot of illegal aliens are committing a lot of crimes? I don't think Joe Biden could listen all the way to the end of the first sentence. So, Early in the interview, here's a quote from Joe. We're now in a position where America has the strongest economy of any major nation in the world. Well, huh, no matter who was running the country, America has had the number one economy in the world since 1890, Joe. 130 years and then some. No matter who was president. We've had the top economy in the world. So when Joe Biden does this, it's a kind of gaslighting. We all know that there are major problems in America's economy. We know that we ought to be exploring and drilling for more energy. We ought to be exporting LNG at a much higher rate. 
We ought to have a much higher rate of labor force participation. We ought not to be allowing in 10 million illegal aliens who are going to take many of the jobs that Americans would like to have. He's not going to address any of that. He just wants to brag on something that's been true for 130 years. And then this. Myers asked Biden what his 2024 presidential agenda would be if he gets elected. And he said the 2020 agenda is to finish the job. Now, I got to tell you something. I know that Joe Biden meant something different by this. But what I read into that is, in the first three years, you've managed to devastate this country. We have the biggest debt we've ever had. We have the biggest federal deficit we've ever had. We are shipping tens of billions of dollars to a war we're not even directly involved in. And now we find out that some of the impetus for that war may have been the fact that the United States was running secret biolabs in Ukraine and secret CIA spy bases in Ukraine and putting pressure on Russia. And your job is to finish the job? You mean finish shutting down oil exploration? Finish shutting down natural gas? Finish telling Americans to buy electric vehicles they don't want? Shut down major parts of our energy supply and replace them with windmills and solar panels from China? Is that the job Joe Biden is talking about? He's only half destroyed the country and now he wants to finish the job? What good thing has Joe Biden done that he needs to finish? We've got a war going on in Ukraine that we're involved in and we're sending tens or hundreds of billions of dollars there to a notably corrupt country. And you say, well, what's the finish to the job there? Are you telling us the Ukraine war will be over by the end of your second term? Are you telling us that DEI and CRT and all this nonsense is going to be fully implemented by the end of, what, by, by 2028? Is that what you're telling us? And then finally this. So Seth Meyers suggests that Donald Trump wants to be a dictator and that democracy might be at risk if he's elected. You ought to take a look at some of the things that Joe Biden's been doing lately. If he wants to know dictator, look it up in the dictionary. You'll find Joe's picture right there. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. political climate he's the steamroller this is the lars larson show welcome back to the lars larson show it's a pleasure to be with you on a tuesday and it's tuesday primary day for michigan and i have fond memories of michigan i mean the last time i was back there for any length of time because my dad's brothers all live there they've all passed away but was spending time in michigan in the summertime with my cousins and my uncles and all that it's a great state and so I, I hope we get great news uh, about the primary. John Schweppe joins me now, who's Director of Policy and Government Affairs at the American Principles Project. So the polls are all going to close a little bit later on tonight. John, what do we expect to see there? Well, I think Trump's going to win. I think that's a pretty safe bet. You know, Lars, <laughs> I actually just had... <laughs> Did you get anybody my, to take uh, that bet, John? 
Uh, no, I couldn't get anyone to take the, the money at even, which would have been great. But, no, I just had my uh, oldest kid at a basketball game this weekend, and I had to give him the whole never give up, never quit speech, and now I'm kind of rethinking it. Like, you know, Nikki does not need to hear that from anyone. She needs no. to quit. Uh, <laughs> there's no path for her, but she just keeps trying. And, you know, I, at this point, we need to get behind the nominee. Well, tell me this, though. I'm, I'm with you. I'm a Trump guy, have been all along, and I see no reason to change my vote. And Nikki Haley, tell me if I'm wrong in assuming that she's still in because her big money donors counted on her to be the spoiler for Donald Trump. They saw no, I, don't, I, I doubt that any of these people smart enough to have gi giant seven and eight, nine figure uh, bank accounts uh, thought for a moment that she had a prayer of beating Donald Trump to the nomination. But they saw her as a spoiler and they said, we funded all this other garbage for you to the tune of hundreds of millions of dollars. Uh, we need you to stay in there and, and do, do as much damage and burn up as much of Donald Trump's money as you possibly can. Do you think I'm wrong in looking at it that way? Well, it's not working. I mean, in South Carolina, I'm pretty sure the Trump campaign spent like a few million dollars at that. But, <laughs> you know, look, I, I, do, I do think you're right um, that that's the goal here. But you just saw even Americans for Prosperity, uh, a never Trump group effectively at this point, you know, they, they left the race. So, you know, it's just not really clear what this is for, unless your point that it's about helping Joe Biden. And, you know, Nikki Haley is still pretty young. I mean, she could absolutely get a post in an administration at some point, maybe not Trump's after this. Uh, but, you know, she really needs to, to look at the writing on the wall and not spoil uh, what's left of her career. I think that would be really uh, disappointing. You know, I almost wonder if it's too late for that, John. Nobody's going to hire me as a campaign consultant. But I told one of my producers, Joel, the other night, I said, look, if she's got any political future at all to run for anything, how many people in South Carolina are going to say, you insisted on running against Trump? He got close to 60% of the vote. It was just a hair below that. And you got 40. And, and you have to remember, if she's going to run for, say, Senate out of, out of uh, South Carolina, she's going to run for governor again. Uh, she's going to run for anything else. All the people who voted for Donald Trump and saw her running this, you know, chaotic, quixotic, uh, you know, campaign against him are going to remember that. And I think they're going to they're, they're going to say, now, I remember when you ran against Trump just to be a spoiler. I'm not voting for you for anything. Now, maybe people will do it that way. Maybe they won't. But I wanted to get your take. No, I think there's some truth to that. I mean, especially since she's kind of been running to Trump's left on a lot of yeah. these issues. Um, you know, in South Carolina, I think I saw exit polling. I don't have the exact number, but, you know, of her 40 percent, you know, a good portion of them were Democrats and, and independent moderates who are likely to vote for Biden in 2024. So, you know, I, I just think ultimately you look at what DeSantis did. He shot his shot. He went for it in Iowa. He lost. He got out. And I think that's respectable and, and gives him a future. But you might be right. You know, it might be at this point Haley's just stayed in way too long. Maybe she knows that, and that's why she's willing to play spoiler. See, because I resent her, the role that she's playing right now uh, in saying you, it was one thing to run and say, well, maybe Amer maybe I'll catch fire with Americans. You didn't. You stayed in, and you stayed in because a bunch of big money people decided we want to damage Trump as much as we possibly can. Now, here's one other possibility. I don't think it's as likely, but you tell me, John, do you see her running an independent campaign? And if she does... 
Does she pull more heavily? Does she do the Ross Perot effect on, more on Joe Biden or more on Donald Trump? Yeah, there's been talk about that. Maybe she wants to be the no labels candidate uh, that Joe Manchin even was too smart to, to bother doing. Um, I guess that's possible. But you know, I really think Republican voters are smart. And I think they look at her, you know, the types of voters she would attract in a three way race or even a four way race with Kennedy. in. Um, you know, I think she would attract people who aren't going to vote for Trump anyway. And right. that probably doesn't hurt us. So, uh, you know, I saw polling not to just not to go to the other thing, but, you know, Kennedy is already kind of a lag on Biden. And you're seeing that with black voters where Kennedy's getting 20, 25 percent of black voters. You know, if that if that holds up, I mean, that would be huge for Trump. So, um, you know, I, we'll see what she does. But at this point, I mean, it, 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 we're, we're, we're making this a horse race when it's it's not. I mean, this is over. We're on to the general, and we'll see if, uh, if Biden can even withstand uh, through November. Well, let's talk about Biden for a moment then. Is there enough 25th Amendment talk about having him remove himself uh, or having him removed by force under the 25th Amendment? Both are possible. Is there enough there that the Democrats decided to, uh, you know, cut, 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 you know, cut the line at this point and say, Joe, you need to step to the side. Uh, or are they going to let him go all the way to the convention and grant him the nomination, knowing that this is going to be a disaster of a campaign heading into the fall? Yeah, I, I think they're going to stick with him, Lars. Honestly, wow. I know there was a monologue from John Stewart a couple of weeks ago, or maybe just a week ago, uh, that a lot of people were saying, oh, this is liberals giving permission to to turn on Joe Biden. But you saw the White House this week. I mean, they had him do a, uh, uh, you know, a talk show with Seth Meyers, a, yep. a guy who used to be honey. And, and then they also had him, you know, talking about uh, the Palestine situation with an ice cream in his hand. Uh, he looks like a fool in all these, these, you know, outings, but they're definitely trying to make the argument that, that he's lucid. And so um, I, I think they just believe, and they're probably right, that Biden's their best tr chance to beat Trump. <laughs> uh, you know, if they have to go to Kamala, um, you know, or somebody else crazy, I, I think that they'd be in trouble. I mean, John, if Biden is their best shot, then I think they're done. Stick a fork in him. And when he talks about a ceasefire, so we're going to let the terrorist organization win. They commit the act of terror. Yeah, they got beat up a bit, but most of their organization is intact. And now we're going to say we're going to we're going to negotiate some deal where Hamas gets a break. And, and then they get to reconfigure and come back again and terrorize on another day. And, and this is what Joe Biden says is going to be delivered by Monday. And when he shows up at the border on Thursday, that one seems like a disaster just waiting to be made. Uh, because he's only been there once before. And when he shows up this time, I don't know that any report, maybe local reporters will ask him some tough questions. That's John Schweppe, Director of Policy and Government Affairs at American Principles. John, thanks so very much. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show. What I know. Okay, it's a nice ride. It's going to happen. Stand by playback. I know. Lars. Real Red Meat Radio. I may be a white boy, but I'm not stupid. This 
is The Lars Larson Show. Somebody at the White House has been smoking the devil's lettuce. Honestly provocative talk radio. More than half the women in my cabinet, more than more than half the people in my cabinet, more than half the women in my administration are women. Lars. Never apologize for being patriotic. Our beloved republic is in the hands of madmen. This is a dark day. No, here's your host. My memory is so bad I let you speak. Lars Larson. You know what? That is an example of a classic case of making news because it's the mayor of a major liberal city, in this case, San Francisco, and the mayor is London Breed. Now, she's officially a Democrat, although she's a whole lot more conservative than a lot of Democrats you might think of. But she did something extraordinary there. Because in just a few short words, she said harm reduction is not reducing the harm. Now, let me tear that apart and tell you what harm reduction is a magic word for, a phrase for, in America. And I'll tell you why it's literally killing people in this country that the official policy on drugs is harm reduction. I know that sounds counterintuitive, but just bear with me for a moment. First, though, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. And we always say, if you want to join the best conversation in talk journalism, it's right here every day at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you happen to be a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line. And, of course, in the last couple of days, we've had some great naysayers and some bad ones as well. But if you're willing to come in, make your best argument, and then stand up for a few questions, uh, it will be kind of funny, uh, fun at the end of the day. Not funny, but fun. Uh, if you want to send an email, it's talk at LarsLarson.com. And, of course, you can always vote in our Twitter poll or X poll, as we now call it. And it sounds like a strange question. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? And if you say, well, who's stopping that? There are actually four states in America. I mean, I learn something almost every day. But today, in Missouri, in Arizona, in Texas, and Arkansas, if your spouse, the female part of your couple, and I guess these days sometimes it's two females in a marriage, depending on the state, but if your wife is pregnant, you cannot finalize a divorce. Not until the happy event has happened. So, should it be illegal to finalize a divorce while the baby is still on the way? I would say that's not a, not a bad idea to say you should be able to say, hold that up, hold that thought, until the baby's arrived, and then finalize the divorce. But Missouri is considering getting rid of the law. It remains in place in three other states. Should you be able to divorce if your wife is pregnant? And apparently that applies to both sides of the marriage, uh, whether it's one spouse or the other. doesn't matter. If baby's on the way, the divorce cannot be finalized. I don't see a problem with prohibiting the divorce from being made final until after the baby has arrived. But let me get back to London Breed. London Breed is the mayor of San Francisco. And when she was first elected, I thought, okay, you've got a woke city like San Francisco. You've got a Democrat and you've got London Breed. And then I started noticing what she was doing. And this thing that she said just yesterday afternoon, they held a rally. And one of the biggest problems that's hitting any American city is fentanyl and fentanyl overdoses. So what did she say about it? Harm reduction is not reducing the harm. Now, as usual these days, you've got to decode what politicians say. Harm reduction is a term of art that is used by the, uh, well, it's actually used by government. It's used by both liberals and conservatives grudgingly use it. What it means is 
that if you have people in your city, as so many American cities do, who are getting high on a regular basis on meth or cocaine or heroin or fentanyl, harm reduction means you supply them with everything they need, not the drugs, but you give them housing, you give them food, you give them medical care, you give them legal defenses in some cases. You do everything for them except make them get off drugs. That's what they call harm reduction. So like a lot of liberal terms that are used in government these days, it's kind of nonsensical because if you say, why, we're going to reduce the harm to this individual by letting him or her continue to smoke methamphetamine, shoot heroin in their veins, uh, take fentanyl through whatever mechanism they're taking fentanyl. Well, at least one big city mayor in America has finally condemned that failed government policy. And you should know a couple of things about that policy. I'll get to that because she says harm reduction, from my perspective, is not reducing harm it is making things worse. You couldn't hear that in the soundbite because there were so many people applauding the liberal mayor of a liberal city condemning one of the most long-lasting policies in America. Now, the fact is, I think harm reduction should be called enabling. And it makes me think of my late father, who was an unrepentant longtime alcoholic. Now, he's passed away now. I'm not going to hurt his feelings by saying this. But he would go to work every day as a forest ranger. He'd come home and get drunk every single night. And it did tremendous damage to the people around him. Now, at one point, my father came to live with Tina and I uh, when we were married. Uh, we were married. And, and uh, he said, can I come and stay with you guys for a while? I said, sure. But there's one rule. No drinking. No drinking at all. You start drinking, you're out. Now, you might call that tough love. You could call that mean-spirited. It's none of the above. I was simply saying you're a longtime alcoholic. If you start drinking again, you're not welcome in our home. As long as you don't, you are welcome. Now, you'd say, but Lars, that's just common sense. Of course it is. But what's not happening right now is most big cities in America, including Seattle and Portland and San Francisco and every other big city, they all went along with this harm reduction. First, we get them food and shelter and medical care and an apartment, and we get them all this other stuff. And then at some point, maybe they'll decide to quit drugs. If you say, Lars, that's never going to work. I agree. It's never going to work. And yet that's what they do. So how did we end up with harm reduction? I'm going to tell you how. A guy by the name of Barack Hussein Obama claimed to be a constitutional expert, gave us evidence to the contrary. And more than a decade ago, in 2013, Barack Obama came out and announced that he was going to impose something called Housing First, which goes right along with harm reduction. It fits, they fit like a glove together. What he said was, you have to go out and get these people housing first, and then we'll solve all their other problems, the problems that put them on the street to begin with, and what Barack Obama said 10 year, 11 years ago now, we will solve homelessness in 10 years. Well, if you haven't looked around you recently, you understand that Barack Obama predicted the end of homelessness in 10 years, and the problem has only got worse. So when Barack Obama announced it, though, he also put in a stick. He said, if cities will not go along with housing first and harm reduction, then I will deny them billions of dollars in housing and urban development money. Guess what happened? The politicians in every major city in America said, oh, 
We've got to do housing first and harm reduction, and then we get the billions. Okay, we'll sign up for that. They did it. It's turned out to be a terrible tragedy. It has enabled drug addiction. It has destroyed a lot of cities, and the policy is still in place. But the light at the end of the tunnel may be when the mayor of San Francisco lives up to Frank Rizzo's old adage, a conservative is a liberal who just got mugged. Well, I figure that London Breed just got mugged by what's happened to her city, and now she's calling it out and condemning this so-called harm reduction that does not reduce harm. Back in a moment, glad to get your calls. 866-439-5277. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. Just listen for five minutes. You'll feel better. More with Lars Larson right now. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. It's a pleasure to be with you, and I'm glad to get to your phone calls and emails. We'll do that in just a minute. But I want to talk about Alejandro Mayorkas. He is the Homeland Security Secretary. He has been impeached by the House of Representatives, and now it seems that impeachment is going exactly nowhere. Even though I think it's important to point out, the U.S. Constitution says the Senate is expected after the impeachment of a federal official to actually have a trial and decide whether or not that official should be found guilty. I've compared it to indictment and trial. Uh, the district attorney indicts. That's what the House effectively does, is they indict somebody by impeaching them. And then the Senate holds a trial, much the way an indicted person might be put on trial to decide whether or not the charge against him is is true or not. I thought we'd talk to Laura Reese, who's senior research fellow for Homeland Security at Heritage and former acting deputy chief of staff uh, for the Department of Homeland Security. Laura, welcome back. Thank you for having me on. So is Mayorkas ever going to get a trial in the Senate? Will Americans ever hear whether America, whether uh, Democrats in the Senate are willing to say, yep, he uh, he's committed the uh, the offenses that the House impeached him for, and we've either voted him guilty or not guilty? Is that ever going to happen? Well, there seems to be a growing number of senators calling for a uh, full impeachment. Even this afternoon, uh, Senator Thune and even uh, McConnell said that they support a complete uh, trial. Um, so the the needle may be moving, and we need Americans to keep applying pressure, call their senators, call Senator Schumer in particular, and demand a full trial, because the Biden administration and Secretary Mayorkas has been so secretive and so deceitful about their open border operations, the infrastructure that has been set up by the non-governmental organizations, and the money that has been sunk into this. And meanwhile, you know, now we have 22-year-old nurse college nursing students uh, being Lake killed by by people who you know shouldn't be here. And Americans were fed up before. It's showing. You know, immigration is in every the top issue for every poll right now. Um, it, they're just getting angrier. I mean, this, I, this, I, that girl sorry. should be alive. Laura, I know that, you know, people say, well, this is political. And I said, didn't the founders intend this was effectively a political decision? It's not a decision on policy. It's a decision on 
has this person done his job? Has he, you know, lied to the Congress? Has he violated the law? Has he violated the Constitution? Has he put the country at risk? I think the answer to all that is yes, he's done all that. Well, if the Democrats want to stand up and back this guy, then why don't they have the trial and say we voted to acquit him and that's that. Donald Trump was acquitted twice after being impeached and... Uh, and, and they could do the same with Mayorkas. Or do they see too much political hazard in saying, no, he's done a good job, when it's very clear to Americans he has not? Well, that's exactly it. And that's why the Senate Democrats don't want to hold a trial, because they don't want to defend this guy. They've lost confidence in him like everybody else. They just won't admit it in public. Um, so I, I think perhaps the best result would be if the Democrats just quietly went to Mayorkas and said, it's time for you to go spend more time with your family, and he resigns. Um, but he needs to get out of office, and he shouldn't be permitted to hold public office again. Uh, the damage he's done, the refusal to uphold the law, violating the law, uh, lying to Congress under oath, lying to the American public, um, and endangering so many Americans. Laura, let me ask you about this. Uh, Joe Biden, in his long, uh, I would say too long, Senate career and, and then as vice president, now as president, he's been to the American border exactly one time. He's going to go again tomorrow, except he's going to Brownsville rather than going to where most of the illegals have been flowing across the border. He's going to one of the legitimate border crossings, which is not where we have the problem. But having said that, do you get the sense that he is starting to course correct on this uh, because he realizes how much trouble he's in on immigration issues with Americans? They now, all the polls in the last week or so, have said that Americans see illegal immigration as their biggest uh, issue when it comes to you know, the presidential election and the other elections going on this fall. So it, does he see enough danger there for himself politically that he's going to course correct? And if, then, if so, then why not? You know, why not pitch uh, Mayorkas overboard? We know Biden will replace him with somebody probably just as bad, if not worse. But it's a, it's a good opportunity for the president to do that if he's really course correcting and not doing a head fake. I'd like your honest assessment of where this is actually going, because I, I don't have a handle on it. Substantively, I don't think he will course correct, uh, but he will do the performance theater and, and give the lip service to border security that he thinks he needs to do in this election year because he knows this is such a bad issue for him. Um, he continues to beg for more money. He continues to push for the terrible border deal that uh, Senator Lankford and Schumer and a couple other senators cobbled together, which would have expanded and codified the very open border tools Biden has been using. That is what he wants, in addition to billions more dollars to give to the NGOs and the sanctuary cities uh, to keep this act all going, his open border operations. Um, and, and I agree with you. It might get to the point where he says, uh, Secretary Mayorkas, you got to go. And, uh, you know, I need a scalp. Uh, that, that is a possible outcome. But substantively, policy-wise, He's not going to change course. Okay, now I want you to hold me back if I've gone over my skis on this one. Because for the last couple of months I've been telling my audience that, look, Biden says he needs more resources to solve this problem. 
This problem was at one of the lowest levels Americans had ever seen of illegal crossing during Trump with policies that didn't have the benefit of extra money, didn't have the benefit of a fully constructed wall. And Trump had to go out and find the money for the wall elsewhere because the Congress, both the Republican and the Democrat Congress, refused to give it to him. And yet he managed to bring about one of the lowest levels of illegal entry America had ever seen. Joe Biden has those same tools available to him right now. Is his argument to, to Americans saying, I can't do this without more resources, which, as you point out, he'll just put to work getting more illegals across the border. But can he really make the argument? And will Americans buy the idea that Trump managed to solve it with the resources he had? Biden can correct it with the resources he has. He doesn't need another dime. I don't think he can still uh, convince Americans that more money is going to secure the border. Um, when more videos come out uh, each week of someone going to an NGO or a, a shelter where migrants are being held, trying to ask questions of the NGO representatives and getting rejected, I mean, those NGO reps will not talk, and then they will grow hostile. Um, when As more of these leak out, Americans become aware that when Biden asks for more money, that's what it's going for. And it's just perpetuating the mess that we're in. Uh, so, no, he can't make that argument con convincingly anymore. But we have to scour any funding bill that is coming along in Congress and find where they're hiding that money because they will do it. The NGOs have run out of money. The sanctuary cities are growing desperate. We have them on the ropes and we need to make sure Congress doesn't give them more money. I mean, this is the part that's irritated me, the, you know, some of it that's irritated me the most, Laura, is they'll say, well, American taxpayers aren't paying for those airplane tickets and those bus tickets. And I say, yeah, you're taking the money and sending it to the U.N. or to NGOs uh, or straight to NGOs. And then there's so you launder it through these. But it's still American taxpayer money. I got about 10 seconds. Yes, the money is going out through Department of Homeland Security, FEMA, State Department, Health and Human Services, and Justice Department through the form of grants to these NGOs. Then the NGOs buy the tickets and the shelter and the, the, do the transportation. And that's how it works. Laura Reese, uh, formerly of Homeland Security, now with the Heritage Foundation. Laura, it's a pleasure. Back in a moment, your calls at 866-HEY-LARS. That's 866-439-5277. If you're a naysayer, we'll put you right to the head of the line. We've always done it. We always will. If you want to send an email, talk at LarsLarson.com. You can also vote in our poll on X. It used to be called Twitter, now it's X. You'll find that at Lars Larson Show. And you can check out our Instagram feed. All the other social media we put up, every single interview on the program is free of charge. You'll find it at LarsLarson.com. The Lars Larson Show. Control. Our Constitution is a document in which we, the people, tell the government what it is allowed to do.
This is The Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to The Lars Larson Show. If you've ever seen a picture of me, you understand two things. I've got a face for radio, and I love food. I absolutely love food. And I, I've had to curb my appetites and lose a few pounds because I got type 2 diabetes. So I pay close attention to what's going on with food. Now, the question is, what are we going to be eating in a few years or maybe even a couple of decades? Because I think there are people out there who have some strange plans for Americans and for rest of the rest of the people on the planet as to what we're going to be eating. I thought I'd put that to David Vorman, who is vice president at Food Solutions Action. David, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Lars. Hey, the Democrats and liberals worldwide seem to hate fishing. They seem to hate farming, and they seem to be pushing us in the direction of either cultivated food of one kind or another, and I don't mean growing at the ground, but food that's made in laboratories or large factories in vats the size of Rhode Island. Um, I, I'm, I'm worried about where they're going with us, and especially, I don't want to eat bugs. Can you help allay any of my fears? I'm, I'm happy to, and I'll say, first of all, that you know we do not advocate for eating bugs you know, but what really is important to know is that this is not really a, a Democrat or a liberal run thing. There's just realities out there that America really needs to face. And that's that protein demand and protein consumption is at an all time high in history. And that's only projected to rise. We're projected to double meat demand by 2050. And, you know, land is a finite resource and we've got some issues with water and for food supply. So we have to figure out how are we going to feed the world? How are we going to meet this global protein demand? And that's where things like cultivated meat come into play. Now, would you mind describing what is cultivated meat? Yes, and you'll you'll have to bear with me. I am not a scientist, so this okay. is a layman's, am I. a layman's description of what cultivated meat is. So what it is is it's taking one animal and harvesting cells from that animal. So that's one cell line, and then. What we can do is we can isolate those cells, and then we can put them into what's called a bioreactor. Think about what looks like really what you see in a, a beer brewery, kind of a, a brewing tank. And, and what these bioreactors do is they isolate these cells, and then you put in a solution that's water, that's amino acid, that's nutrients. And you're sending the messages to the cells to grow. And instead of growing the muscle tissue in an animal, we're growing that muscle, muscle tissue in a, in a bioreactor in more of a sterile environment. Even though you gave me a very, uh, a very lay person level explanation, David, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't like the idea. And I want to go back to the original premise you made. I mean, we already threw Thomas Malthus out of the bus and said, okay, you're crazy. You said we couldn't grow enough food to feed the planet. And I think he said that back at a time when there were far fewer people on the planet. We've now got close to 8 billion people on the planet. Uh, as I understand it, we grow enough food for the entire world. Uh, so now that we've thrown Malthus out the window or out the door, um, can, is there any reason, especially for Americans who have abundant land, abundant energy, uh, and abundant uh, technological resources, is there any reason that makes it desirable to go to cultivated food instead of growing food the old-fashioned way on farms and on ranches? Well, what's desirable is this, this is what's needed. And no one's going to force Americans to eat this. No one's going to force people to eat cultivated meat. It, hamburgers, steaks, traditional animal protein, the meat, that's not going away. We have to figure out how we're going to meet 
worldwide demand. And this is irrespective of population increase. What we're finding is the world's getting wealthier, the world's getting more urban. And what's really interesting is that the first thing that happens when we see countries get more wealthy and, and populations and communities get more wealthy, one of the first things that happens is meat demand goes up. If this is happening in China, this is happening in India, where they've had really low meat-heavy diets. And now as they're getting more wealthy, they're getting more urban, suddenly we're seeing a really, really rapid increase in demand that we just can't meet with our current finite land resource. Okay, but but here's the, uh, you've used the phrase a couple of times, we've got to figure out how to feed the world. Is it the job of the United States to feed the world, or is it uh, financially desirable? I mean, if we're going to grow food, and we have been growing food for export for a long, long time while meeting all of our own needs, we have so much food that we grow, we, we literally do, through the CRP program, pay farmers not to farm on lands, not to cultivate lands. Um, we've got the resources here to have the diet we have. Is it our job to feed the rest of the planet, too? I don't know if it's our job, but we certainly want to do it. Well, by I job, for, I mean moral responsibility. Do we have a moral responsibility to feed the rest of the world, or should the rest of the world also take part in feeding itself? I don't know if moral responsibility has anything to do with it. I think it's really smart politics. First of all, we know there's going to be an export market, so we can continue to export this. We know that China has made this a top three priority, ag priority, in the next five years. China's going all in on this. One, they've got a billion people. They need to feed this. But they understand that food security is national security. And if you're the one feeding the world, you're going to have a lot of sway over geopolitical matters. Think about energy. I think that's a really important analogy here is that if you think about it, you know, we want to control domestic energy and we don't want to be reliant on other nations. Why don't we want to be reliant on other nations? Because energy is really important. And if we're relying on other nations, we're really at the mercy of them. Now, think about food. Food is energy. It's energy for our bodies. It's not energy for our cars and our homes. And if China is the one controlling the energy, the food supply for the Middle East, for South America, for Africa, that has really major geopolitical implications. We don't want to cede that to China. The United States wants to be out front of that and make sure that we're the ones controlling that population. We're the ones with geopolitical influence that we're not at the mercy of China. Well, and by the way, when you said they're not going to make us eat this stuff, well, I'm watching Europe right now where farmers are being told you have to trim back your 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 uh, stock, uh, trim back your cows, trim back all your other livestock, reduce your use of uh, petrochemical fertilizers and things like that. And they're doing it in the name of climate a justice of some kind. And I have a feeling that that movement is going to come here as well. What do Americans do when you say, well, you're going to have to eat bugs and you're going to have to eat cultivated uh, meat because because the climate crazies have told us we can't use fertilizer and we can't use all these other things. And we're not allowed to use the energy that we have in abundance in the form of oil, coal, natural gas. We have to buy solar panels from China. You know, while China isn't running its economy on solar panels, it's running it on coal. So if you tell me that they're not going to make us do this, I suspect that we're going to be at least uh, the question is going to be posed as it is in Europe. Uh, We're going to tell the farmers not to grow as much food, either in the form of meat or cultivated crops. Do you think I'm right or wrong? I think, thankfully, America is not Europe. I think that's a a concern that we're seeing. 
<laughs> but we are not Europe. We have elected representatives. I think we have a, a strong Republican Party, and this is where people can speak up and just say, we don't want to be forced to do this. But I also think that we need to be realistic, and we can't be short-sighted, and we understand that we shouldn't force people to do this, and we shouldn't force farmers to not be able to farm, and we shouldn't force the cattle industry to, to not produce animal protein their way. But we also need to be realistic that there's really worldwide protein demand that's skyrocketing, and the United States needs to make sure that we're in front of that. We can innovate. I think it's important that we innovate. We can continue to lead in biotech without worrying that that's a slippery slope to the government telling us what we can and can't do. I yeah, think we're I'm, a long just, way off I'm just worried that when price pressures start to come into that equation, that, that that might be the way that they push us in that direction. That's David Vorman, who's vice president at Food Solutions Action. And as I said, I'm not persuaded to eat cultivated meat yet, and I certainly am not going to be eating bugs. Back in a moment, you've got the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Welcome back to the Lars Larson Show. Well, the school choice movement appears to have hit a nerve, and I think that's a good thing, and I'll tell you why. Uh, because I like school choice, and I'm going to give you an example, or several examples, of how school choice is mirrored in just about every other government program in the United States of America. But first, welcome to the Lars Larson Show. If you want to join what we call the best conversation in talk journalism, and I think we live up to that every day, it's 866-HEY-LARS. And if you're a naysayer, we're going to put you right to the head of the line at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. And our poll on X today, a little odd, but there is a Missouri law, there are similar laws in Arkansas, Arizona, and Texas that say that if your wife is pregnant in a marriage, you can't finalize a divorce until the baby is born. Now, I've dug as hard as I can so far today, haven't found the legislative history as to why four states in America have that law that say you can start the divorce, but you can't finish it until that baby is born. Not that it would really affect child custody or paternity or child support payments or anything like that. Should you be able to divorce your wife if she is pregnant, I'd say no, but uh, if I'm persuaded by the legislative history, maybe maybe there's a good reason to get rid of it. It does seem odd that only four states have that law. The other 46 states do not, unless, of course, you're an Obama fan, in which case we have 58 states in America, according to Obama. But uh, let me get back to education, because this drives me crazy. There are now two uh, governors uh, who have come out, and they've taken a position, and this is literally how they're framing it. Private schools are only for the rich and privileged. And I already know that there are people listening to the show who have their kids in private schools who are neither rich nor privileged, and they make great sacrifices to make sure they can pay private school tuition, which oftentimes is far below the cost of the government-run schools that are currently failing kids all over America. But the more important indictment is when they say, that Republicans are trying to loot our public schools for private vouchers. 
Uh, Take a listen to what Governor Roy Cooper, a Democrat, has to say about what he calls a voucher scheme. It's clear that the Republican legislature is aiming to choke the life out of public education. Their private school voucher scheme will pour your tax money into private schools that are unaccountable to the public and can decide which students they want to keep out. If they get their way, our state board of education will be replaced by political hacks who can dictate what is taught and not taught in our public schools. Now, hold on a second. This is coming from the Democrat governor of North Carolina. And he says they want to dictate what can be taught and what shall not be taught in our public schools. Well, there's a problem right there. Number one, Democrat liberals have been jamming all kinds of indoctrination into public schools. And you you have probably heard the examples just as I have. You have teachers who are, you know, featuring um, a drag queen story hour for young kids. You have teachers who are pushing the idea of gender transition on kids. You have school districts that are pushing the idea of critical race theory and diversity, equity, and inclusion, which includes lessons to your kids. If you have white skin, you are part of the oppressor class, and you benefit from that. If you have black or brown skin, you are a victim, and you're a victim of those people over there. In other words, you take a classroom full of kids, white kids, black kids, brown kids, and you say the white kids are bad. Their skin color tells you they're bad. And the brown and black kids, you are victims. And you will never be able to do anything without the assistance of, you know, the Democrat Party. So USA Today put this column out by these two Democrat governors, and they were making the argument that private school scholarship accounts that would allow lower-income families to attend schools, private schools, are some kind of trick by rich people to benefit only rich schools, only rich people, only the privileged people. Listen again to Governor Roy Cooper as he talks about the public schools in his state. North Carolina schools need rigorous science, reading, and math classes, not more politicians policing our children's curriculum with book bans, elimination of science courses, and more. Put together, these ideas spell disaster that requires emergency action. The North Carolina I know was built on support for public schools, and we can't let the legislature tear them down. Tear them down? No, do you know what would happen if you had a true voucher program where you say to parents, if you're unhappy with the kind of education your child is getting in the traditional government-run public schools, if you don't want your kid proselytized to, if you don't want your kid indoctrinated about sex, about gender, about skin color, and a lot of other things that many parents believe are not appropriate for the kids, if you don't want your kids to be assigned to read books, there is no book ban, by the way, Governor Cooper, uh, there's There aren't any books that are proposed for banning, but there are books where parents have said, this book is not appropriate for my 8-year-old, 10-year-old, 12-year-old son or daughter. Some of these books are so pornographic that when the parents show up at a school board meeting and r- start reading from the books aloud to a group of adults at a school board meeting, they have school boards that go ballistic. They say, You can't read that book in here. That's disgusting. That's dirty. That's pornographic. And the parents reasonably say, well, hold on. If this book is not appropriate for a group of adults talking about education policy and what books should be in front of kids and what books should not, 
How in the world could it be appropriate for an 8-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old? What will happen is the public schools will be forced to bring up their game. They will be forced to have to provide a quality education. Many of them are not. And if you don't believe me, take a look at the test scores, see how the kids are doing on math and reading and writing and science, the very things that Governor Cooper names. That's number one. So having vouchers is going to improve public schools by threatening them with the loss of students and the money that goes with them that they view as their personal property. Second issue, I've asked people before, do you have a family member on Medicare? And many of them will say yes. And I'll say, is your grandmother or mother uh, required to go to a government hospital to spend those Medicare dollars? And they'll say, well, of course not. That's silly. Well, how about a government grocery store where they spend their food stamps? Are they required to go to a government grocery store? And they say, Lars, there is no such thing. If you have a Pell Grant and you're going to college, are you required to spend that Pell Grant at a state university or are you allowed to spend it at a private university? And the answer, of course, is you can spend it anywhere you like. The same ought to be true in public schools. And if kids leave the public schools and they have left by the millions in just the last four years because the public schools are failing, and we saw that especially during the pandemic times, then you should tell the public schools, up your game or lose your students and lose the dollars that go with them. Glad to get your calls at 866-439-5277. Send your emails to talk at LarsLarson.com. You're listening to The Lars Larson Show. The Lars Larson Show.